Okay, you can turn back to Isaiah, and we're going to start off in Isaiah chapter 7. And if you're just joining us, we're in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Isaiah. Yes, 66 books uh, is quite a journey that we're taking together, but uh, Lord willing, uh, this will be uh, life-changing and worth the time investment we're uh, facing in it. Isaiah is the most prominent of the prophets. It's the longest um, in terms of chapters. Uh, it's not actually the longest book um, overall. There are others that are longer, but uh, it, it comes at the beginning of the major prophets for a reason, and that is it is the most uh, commonly quoted prophetic book in the New Testament, and it has such significance. Um, while you're turning to Isaiah 7, let me uh, pause for a brief commercial announcement. Uh, you will notice that we have some very nice-looking, bright screens that are in, or uh, projectors that are in uh, temporary positions there. Uh, if you get a chance, uh, go over and shake Susie Wortman's hand and thank her for her uh, research abilities. Uh, she did a bunch of research on projectors. Our other ones, if you know, have been dying, especially you folks over here in the cheap seats. Uh, you know, yours has been dwindling. So what do you think? They look nice? Okay, they, they are almost a thousand lumens more. A lumen is a unit of brightness, so it should be a thousand units of brightness brighter than the old ones, and plus this one particular wasn't operating right. So um, now you guys have your lights off. You're, you're cheating, aren't you? The idea is that we can see this with the lights on. So what I'd like you to do, I'd love for you to just kind of go back and forth, turn the lights on, turn the lights off. When we're, not, not right now, but when, when we're all done. And then you can tell me which one you like. There's actually two different models, two different technologies. So the LCD is competing with the DLP. If that means anything to you, uh, Mr. Harris, he knows what that means. So um, the engineers in the room are like, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, so thank you, Susie, for that. And uh, we're going to just try these out and figure out which one that we like better. And then we'll take the other one back and buy two of the ones that we like. And eventually, of course, they'll get mounted up upstairs so you're not uh, jumbling around cords and whatnot there. So be careful. Don't knock down our new projectors. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, let's uh, just take a moment to review. The title of the message today is Hope and Judgment. And you'll see again those those competing themes coming together. And uh, so let's review. Last time, uh, you'll remember that we, we dealt with the Christmas verse, the first Christmas verse that we see in Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And uh, so here's what I'm going to do. I want to see, every teacher wants to know if he's being effective or she's being effective. So I want you to tell me what was the background of Isaiah 7? Why did God give this sign of the virgin with child? What was going on? And then let's talk together through the significance of the sign and what it means. And uh, so I'm going to stop talking, or at least try, and you're going to tell me, okay? So what's the background of Isaiah 7? Israel's in apostasy, okay? They, they are rejecting of God. That's right. Okay, what else? There's three kings. Okay, that's right. So, so let's think about this. We've got three nations and represented by three kings we have to think about. Okay, the first nation is... What's that? Syria, okay? And their king is... You can look at your notes. It's okay, you can look back. Okay, all right, and then who's, what's the second nation? 
Israel, that's the northern kingdom, right? Remember the kingdom of Israel is divided in northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The northern one we typically just call Israel. The southern kingdom we call Judah. Okay, so who's the king of Israel at this time? What's that? Okay, Pekah. Okay, so there's two kings, two kingdoms. Now, what are they, what are they about to do? Okay, they're going to come together in alliance to attack Judah. Why do they want to do that? Right. Okay, so yes, Syria and Israel have banded together. They want to attack Judah, take all those people, take their land, and then bring all their forces together against who's the superpower threatening to take over? Assyria. Okay, so that, that's the political scene. That's what's going on in the backdrop here. Now, so in that context, tell me about the king of Judah whose name is... Ahaz, you guys are doing well, good job, I'm proud of you, I really am. Okay, so what does Ahaz want to do with this threat of these other two nations coming against him? Okay, not he doesn't want to make peace with them, you're close. He wants to ally with Assyria. He wants to go to the enemy and say, will you help me, these two little nations are coming, right? And so Isaiah is then dispatched to go to Ahaz. And what does he say? Don't do it. Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Why should Ahaz not be afraid? Because God is with him. Okay. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so this this is where we have to think about the background here. Because if you just read chapter 7, and this is the problem. This is why we struggle to read out the book of Isaiah. Because we read it ignorant of the rest of our Bible. We go, this isn't making any sense. Let's go to a psalm. Psalms are easy to understand, right? And that's what we do. Don't do that. Spend the time to understand what is this talking about. We, we miss the riches of the Bible when we just bail out of interpretation too early. Okay, get a study Bible, read a little bit of the background, and that will help you. Okay, so yes, so Ahaz, uh, here's Isaiah, and Isaiah says, don't worry about it, uh, trust God, this is not a threat, and not just because I'm a prophet, but because Ahaz is a king of Judah, which means he's a king in what special line? The line of David. Now you'll notice, look at chapter 7, verse 2, Isaiah explicitly wants to bring in the idea of uh, the Davidic kingdom here, right? Verse 2, when it was reported to the house of David, he could have just said he reported it to Judah, but he doesn't say that. He says when it was reported to the house of David, he wants us, the readers, to say, wait a minute. There's a broader context here we need to be thinking about. And then, of course, if we look down at verse uh, 13... Then he said, listen now, O house of David. There it is again. So we have this emphasis on King David, the house of David, and why is that significant for Ahaz? That's right. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the promise of the Davidic covenant was what? You will not lack a king. And that that king, kingly line will culminate in the king of kings, the Messiah, who's coming uh, to, as we saw in, in Psalm chapter 2, to receive the kingdom of God and to rule in his stead. So what Ahaz should have done is said, wait a minute. 
I'm in the king of Judah. I'm in the line of the kings of Judah. I have the Davidic covenant behind me. And God has promised that nothing will break that line insofar as we trust him and walk with him. What Ahaz should have said is, my kingdom and my rule is indestructible from any threat as I look to God. Okay, now, now, of course, the, the king of Jews are going to die and they're going to lead to the next king. It's not saying you know he's immortal. It's just saying there's no threat that's going to come against him that will ultimately disrupt uh, that succession of kings. So that's Isaiah's message, okay? Does that make sense? So let's remind ourselves, and, and this is review from last time, but this is so important. I went ahead and put it on your slides. Now, your notes... Uh, you don't have this in your notes. Uh, if you want the notes from last time, you can find them located in the uh, overflow pile there on the table. Okay, so God through Isaiah is speaking to the house of David, not just Ahaz, okay? And we looked at that last time. So uh, in verse 10 now, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself because, um, uh, actually notice the threat. Look at verse 9. Isaiah tells Ahaz, if you do not heed what I'm telling you to do, meaning you do not go join with the Assyrians and don't freak out about uh, Israel and Syria, it's going to be okay. But Isaiah says, if you don't listen to me, verse 9, you will, if you will not believe, you surely will not last. Meaning, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you are going to die, and that is going to be the end. Verse 10, so the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, he's he's trying to sound all pious and, and holy and religious there. But the reality is, if God asks you, ask for a sign, then you better do it. <laughs> it's not testing the Lord to do what he's asking you to do. So, really, the reality was... Ahaz's mind was made up, wasn't it? He, he doesn't even want to engage, and that's why he answers like that. So God says, okay, if that's the way you want it, I'll give you a sign. Verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David. He's not just talking to Ahaz, he's talking to the whole nation. He's thinking about the line of the Davidic kings here. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men, that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's the sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Now, verse 15, we usually stop right there when it's Christmas time and we, and we, we sing you know, some Christmas song after that, which we should do. But look at verse 15. We're not done with the sign yet. The sign is not just the virgins with, with child bears a son and they give him this title that's kind of weird. I mean, you don't name your kid God with us typically, do you? Um, but that's not all the sign is. Here, here's, here's another significant portion of the sign, verse 15. He will eat curds and honey. Okay, at that point you're supposed to go, what? And you're not going what, which means you're not understanding the significance here. What, what, is, what is the significance of the curds and honey? Do you remember from a couple times ago, Tom? That's right. That's right. Susie, are you going to see? Okay. Yeah, so curds and honey is not like, oh, wonderful, we're feasting. Curds and honey is the diet of poverty. So so watch this. The sign is not just the virgin is with child. The sign is not just there's a son named Emmanuel. The sign is that this 
special son is born into poverty instead of prosperity. And that's why the New Testament makes such a fuss over this. He's born in a manger? Are you out of your mind? The Son of God is born in a manger? We, and we sing about that, but we forget the prophetic significance of that. The prophetic significance is that it's prophesied right here. Jesus is coming in poverty. Why? Because of Ahaz's disobedience. Because of the disobedience of the people and the kings that brought judgment on the nation, that judgment brought in other people that... Uh, annihilated the land and took over the kingdoms and destroyed their cities so that by the time Jesus comes, by the time Jesus is born, who's occupying Israel at that time? Rome is. You say, well, I thought this was Assyria. I don't know. Assyria is the first step in a succession of political takeovers of Israel. You have the Assyrians that take over the northern kingdom. Then Assyria is taken over by a country named Babylon. Babylon takes over the the southern kingdom, okay, and then they, they go for a while, and then who takes over from Babylon? Okay, and then after the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and after the Greeks, the Romans. See, there's a succession there, and so when the first century A.D. rolls around, now Rome is the superpower. But you see, it starts right here. And that's why when we read this, it's not just a prophecy the virgin will be with child. It's a prophecy that says when Jesus comes, he's not going to come into the world with pomp and, and splendor and, and prosperity and there's gold palaces and, and trumpet blasts and all this wonderful things like, like we would typically do when a king comes. He's going to come, born in a manger, come to his land with his people that are occupied by the enemy and under Ro- Roman hostile rule. That was just as much of the sign as the fact that the, ger- the virgin will be with child. Okay? And that's what I want you to understand. That's the link between Christmas and what we're talking about here. Okay. So let's go back to the text here and let's pick it up just by way of a couple of uh, reminders here. So remember we saw that the word virgin means virgin. And sometimes there's some debate on that. Emmanuel, the child here, cannot be Macher, which is the other child we're going to see in chapter 8 in, in just a few minutes. Okay? Now watch this. Here, I'm going to summarize what I just said here. The sign is that Emmanuel will be born into poverty because the land will be desolate due to the unfaithfulness of the house of David. Curds and honey is a diet of poverty, not prosperity. And we know that contextually because later on in chapter 7, verse 22, curds and honey are mentioned as a part of the desolation that happens when Judah is overtaken. Now the timing of the child's birth is tricky. This is what we spent the most time on last time. It sounds like... The child Emmanuel will be born within the lifetime of Ahaz. But if we look close, and we saw this last time, the text doesn't actually say that. What the text says is that the sign is that the land of Israel in Syria will be desolate and Judah will be in ruins while the child is still young. It doesn't say necessarily, although it, it could be, but not specifically that that happens in Ahaz's lifetime. What has to happen before the child is born is the land has to be laid bare. Now, the text doesn't actually say that Ahaz will witness the birth of the child, only that his disobedience will explain the shocking conditions into which he will be born. Make sense? Okay, since Judah will not be in ruins until the Babylonians invade in 586 B.C., the child cannot come until after this event, well after Ahaz's death. Which is interesting because, you know, there's some debate on you know, we, we know that the child Emmanuel has to point to Jesus in some way. What we, what we struggle with is, 
is there some child that's born in Ahaz's time and he kind of has some significance and then there's another child, Jesus, that's born in the future? Some, some commentators believe that. I don't think that's the best way to understand that because I don't think the text requires it. I think what we're learning here is that the child is going to be born into poverty because of the disobedience of Ahaz. Uh, and in terms of when that's going to happen, we're left kind of wondering. But we do know uh, historically that... Uh, it's going to take till 586 BC for Judah to be uh, overrun by the Babylonians. So we don't have those conditions being met till well into the future. Okay, and we know Emmanuel must be a special child because he's born of a virgin. He uniquely possesses the land of Israel. We'll talk about that in a minute. He alone will provide the security of Israel from his enemies. And his association with the house of David here links him with the Davidic king in 9-7, and we'll talk about that also in a moment. So here's the summary. If you missed last time, last time was one of our most exciting classes, I think. Here's the summary. Because of Ahaz's disobedience as the representative of the house of David, Isaiah prophesied that a special child, the Messiah himself, would not be born into the expected prosperity fit for a king into a nation that was flourishing victorious over its enemies. Instead, the child will be born into poverty, specifically as a demonstration of judgment on the unfaithfulness of Ahaz, while also demonstrating God's faithfulness to preserve the Davidic line by sparing Ahaz from the threat he anticipated from Pekah and Rezin. Okay, you got it? Welcome to history class. Does anyone want to take a break and get some coffee? You look like you might need some coffee. So, it, it, It's, it's mind-intensive, isn't it? Okay, the, the, the Bible is not an easy book to understand sometimes, uh, but it's an important book, obviously, to understand, and so we need to get our heads into the history so that we can understand what's going on. Now, that leads us... Yes, sir? Going back to the House of David issue, mm-hmm. yep. addresses the House of David. Could it be said that he's talking to Ahaz, he's talking to the people at that time, but because it's the House of David, it, it, it's really speaking to all of the kings yeah. that follow that yes. as well. Yeah, right? yeah. The same warning, same promise. Right, that's exactly it. Yeah, and, and in fact, you remember, I didn't mentioned it a moment ago but remember in verse was it 13 or 14 the language changes from you singular talking to ahaz to you plural talking about the whole house of david which is the line of kings into the future as you're saying and really the whole people because uh, you know the, the people are promised this uh in terms of the, you know the kings will will play it out but this this is the, the hope of the people too so yes it, it's a collective uh judgment and a collective pronouncement That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. Okay, guys, you ready? Your seatbelt's fastened. Chapter 8, verse 1. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, take for yourself a large tablet. Now that probably, the language there probably means a large scroll. So picture this this wall-sized scroll. Um, and and uh, so God tells Isaiah, take this large scroll and write on it in ordinary letters, that's interesting, uh, and I think what, what he means by that is make it plain for everybody to read, okay? Make big and large. Here's what you're going to write on it, okay? Machar shalal hashbaz, um, which the translation is something like this, swift, booty, 
speedy prey. And you go, it sounds like many, many Tekalu Parson, right? You know, the handwriting on the wall in Daniel, it's, it's, it's kind of code language. But those are four words of judgment on the people. Those are four words that describe the coming um, captivity and battle of the Assyrians overtaking them. Swift, if you know anything about your your um, Assyrian history, uh, Hitler was not the first ruler to invent the blitzkrieg, the lightning war, the, the come in quick and take over quickly technique of warfare. This was something that the ancient kings employed as well. And when you read Assyrian history as well as Babylonian history, um, that was a part of their strategy as well. So the, the word swift speaks to that, that, that the Assyrians are going to come in quickly and take over booty. That's interesting. Assyria is not coming just because they like to kill people and break things. They're coming because they want stuff. Now, what does Israel have that might be valuable to the nations around them? They have gold where? In the temple. What temple? Solomon's temple. And you remember Solomon's temple? You know, this, this was not a, you know, $9.99, you know, build it at home kit temple. I mean, th- this was, they were bringing in trees from Lebanon. Remember that? They were importing gold and precious metals. This thing was, it's, it's hard to imagine because there's nothing like it today. This thing was more valuable than almost any other facility in the ancient Near East. It had so much gold and so much uh, precious metals involved in it. So it's not just, hey, we want to take over this land. It's if we can get our hands on that gold. And uh, and you remember, um, speaking of Daniel, when Belshazzar has the party and he wants to show off to all his friends, what does he bring into his party? Yeah, the utensils from the temple. Because it's like, hey, we beat these guys and look at these these valuable uh, utensils and, and pieces that we have from that. So booty represents the, the money and riches that they're going to gain from all of this. Look at the next word. Speedy. That parallels the first word. They're going to come in in a blitzkrieg fashion. And the last word is probably the most horrible one. Pray. P-R-E-Y, right? What does that mean? What's that? Like you're, yeah, like you're going hunting. And that is the picture. Can you imagine that? You're going to be hunted, is what God is saying to Isaiah to go tell the people. You're going to be like a deer or a pigeon or whatever you're hunting. Not pigeon, what am I saying? Um, dove, dove hunting. Uh, you're going to be the prey on this, okay? So, macher shalal hashbaz means swift booty Speedy prey. If you supply some uh, some verbs there, swift is the booty, speed is the prey. It actually makes more sense to just leave it standalone. Those four words represent different aspects of God's judgment. Now, what is He going to do there? Verse two, and I will take to myself. So Isaiah is supposed to take this big scroll and write those words and take it out and put it in a prominent place. Now, why would He do that? He's warning the people of the invasion, right? That that this judgment is coming. And then verse 2, I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony 
uh, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jabershiach. And uh, why is he going to do that? Why is he going to bring two witnesses in to witness the creation of this great tablet, this great um, uh, scroll that he's going to write these words of judgment upon? Why would he want witnesses? Okay, yeah, actually there, there, is, there is a legal overtone to this. In, in a sense that Isaiah, that God is saying to the people, I am giving you legal reason to be warned. Okay, so that, you're right, there is a legal overtone to this, but there's another reason. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's giving credibility to the fact that he's giving them the prophecy before it happens. And the witnesses testify, hey, Isaiah warned you before this historically came about. Okay, so on your notes there, they give testimony that the prophecy was given before its fulfillment. Okay, verse 3, so I approached the prophetess, that's Isaiah writing, I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. So we know that the prophetess is Isaiah's wife. Why is she called a prophetess? Because she is the mother of this boy named Macher Shalal Hashbaz. Now, remember, I, I've told you this before. When you sign up to be a prophet of God in the Old Testament, you have to turn in the baby name book. You, you don't get to name your kids because God very often will name your kids for you. And, and, and this is, those of us that are parents or have, uh, you know, maybe our kids are grown now, but, um, you know, naming your kid is a really special part of life, isn't it? And, and some of you have given them family names. Some of you have given them biblical names or special characters. You know, there's, there's usually a lot of uh, a thought or reason that goes into that. And you give all that up when you're a prophet because these boys... Now, remember, Isaiah has another son. We learned that back in chapter 7, uh, verse 3, right? Chapter 7, verse 3, God told Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son... She'er Yashub, which means what? Remember the remnant will remain, right? So, so boy number one was a name reminding them of a remnant, that there's hope in all of this. Boy number two, the one that's going to be born here, Macher, he is a boy that says judgment is coming. So you got one son named remnant, that's hope. The other son name is judgment, Ugh, right? So that, that's how it goes. So she is called a prophetess, not because she went around prophesying, but because, listen to this, her two boys were living, breathing, prophetic witnesses to the reality of what God was doing in that, part, in that time in history. Um, and we, just, we don't have a category for that today, you know, but that's why she's called the prophetess. Now watch how this works here. So uh, he approached, uh, Isaiah goes into his wife, she conceives, gives birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Macher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry out my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Notice the emphasis here. They're not coming just to take over. They're coming because they want the stuff. They want the riches and the money, the spoil and the, um, the wealth there. Okay. So that's what's going to happen. That's the judgment. And, um, Interesting. Isaiah's whole family was involved in his ministry. Isn't that interesting? God is utilizing his wife. God is utilizing his children uh, in the life of 
uh, in, in terms of their, what God is doing through them. Okay? So, now the king of Assyria is going to overtake all of Syria. You've got to say Assyria and Syria, slowly. Assyria will take over all of Syria and Israel, but Judah will survive. Now listen, listen to the prophecy here, okay? Verse 5. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin, remember that's one of the bad kings, and the son of Remaliah, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates. So he's looking at these two rivers, the massive Euphrates, this, this brook of a river called uh, Shiloh, and he's saying those are metaphors now of the coming judgment. The mighty Euphrates is a, is a metaphor of the coming king of Assyria at the end of verse 7 there in all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will, will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what's he saying? He's saying the Assyrians will come. They're going to take over Syria. They're going to take over Israel. They're going to come into Judah. And then what's Ahaz going to do? Ahaz is going to wave the white flag to the king of Assyria and form an alliance with him so that Judah is going to survive. Okay, Judah is going to survive this invasion because the king of Judah, Ahaz, will side with Ahaz. Or the king of Judah is Ahaz, and he will side with the king of Assyria. Okay? So these are warnings um, of things to come here. Okay? So far, so good. Does that make sense? Okay. Verse 9. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered and give ear all the remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan... But it will not stand. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So notice the contrast. In verse 8, Isaiah says, The land that belongs to Emmanuel will be overrun with foreigners. And largely the people, God's people will be destroyed, okay? But in verse 9, what happens? This is the part where you talk. Jump in anytime. What happens in verse 9? God intervenes. Remember the boys? One's named Speedy, Booty, Judgment, right? The other is named Remnant. And what do we see? We see Judgment in verses 5 to 8. And then what do we see next? Remnant. There's hope in this, okay? You, you see how he, he's pivoting back and forth between coming judgment, but the fact that God is going to intervene. So on your notes there, these are warnings to Israel and Syria specifically, but to any who might come against the people of Emmanuel. That's, that's verse 10. Devise a plan, but it's going to be thwarted. State a proposal. It will not stand. Why? For God is with us. There's Emmanuel again. That time Emmanuel is, is transliterated into its meaning. For God is with us. So even though the land of Emmanuel will be temporarily overrun, what's going to happen? Emmanuel ultimately will have victory. Okay. Now remember, these verses, Emmanuel in verse 8, Emmanuel in verse 10, are what help us interpret Emmanuel Back in chapter 7, uh, verse 14. And um, so there's significance there. Emmanuel, this is the only time in the whole Old Testament 
that the land is said to belong to an individual. The land of Israel belongs to who? Emmanuel. Belongs to Emmanuel. It's his land, though it's being overrun temporarily. And notice, if you bring plans against uh, God's people, if you bring proposals to thwart the people of God, the plan of God, verse 10 reminds us it will ultimately be thwarted. It will not stand for Emmanuel, right? God is with us. So God is the one who ultimately will deliver the people. Okay, verse 11, for thus the Lord spoke to me with a mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. Okay, so what is that? God is specifically warning Isaiah here. Can you just imagine? God has taken over your family. He says, it's time to have a baby. All right, so you and your wife take care of that. Okay, baby number one comes. Here's what you're going to name him. Okay, baby number two comes. You want me to name him what? I mean, how do you get Mahar, Shalal, Hashbaz? I mean, how do you get that on a blanket, on a baby blanket? It's just too long, right? I mean, how do you embroider that on the, right? This is a big long thing, and, you know, they're, they're in the, the, in the hospital and nursery, they're trying to write, you know, it's a boy, and they're trying, they can't quite fit the whole thing on the card, you know, on his name there. Do you imagine, and you need to put yourself in Isaiah's sandals here for a minute. Can you imagine how easy it must have been in the midst of all of this going on, for Isaiah to say, you know what, it, my life would sure be a lot easier if I just gave in a little bit to what the people are wanting me to do. You know? I don't know if my family can take this stress. I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know how Isaiah was tempted, but when you put yourself in his situation, the pressure on him to give in must have been overwhelming at times so god pulls him aside in this verse and he says i just want you to remember hang in there don't give in don't give in to the people okay don't walk in the way of this people now what were the people saying look at what they were saying in verse 12 you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. So this is interesting. What were the people saying about what God was saying through Isaiah to them? It's a conspiracy, man. Right? They were coming up with ways of explaining away the prophet's message. And one of them was, we can't trust him. Why can't they trust it? Because it's a conspiracy. This this is all made up. This is Isaiah's doing. This is some tactic to to take. And so they start they start coming up with this conspiracy theory about why Isaiah is saying what he's saying and why God is doing what he's doing. And that's what God warns Isaiah about. Don't go along with them. Do not buy into the thought that God is just playing games with you. Now, look up for a second. Come up for air for a minute. I know we're, we're deep down in the history here, and I, I need to get you back here for a minute, okay? Um, do you ever feel like God is just playing games with you? Or maybe you know somebody who, because of their difficulty and challenge in life, hurt done to them, sin committed against them, horrific circumstances... Maybe you know someone that says, I feel like God's just playing games with me. You know anybody like that? 
I know some people like that. We've counseled people here at our counseling ministry like that. And that, that's part of what's going on here. When, when bad things happen and those bad things begin to erode your faith in what you thought was true, you start believing things about God that aren't true, don't you? Or you're tempted at least. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he isn't really good. Maybe he's just out to get me. Maybe he's just punishing me for all those past things I did. Right? We think like that, or we can be tempted to think like that. That's what's going on here. And God is reminding Isaiah, do not give in to questioning what you know to be true. What, what does Paul tell Timothy? Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have received them. Right? Don't, don't give in. And you know, we need, this is relevant for us, isn't it? We're going to have days that we're going to go, well, maybe our church wouldn't be such a target for legal prosecution if we just lightened a little bit of what we believe about gender and marriage. Right? You think that day's not coming? That day is coming. And our church will be tempted to soften our stands on certain biblical issues that the culture thinks is absolute anathema, absolutely horrible. And they will bring legal and judicial charges against Christians that hold those views. That's happening overseas now. It's happening in other countries. I talked to another uh, pastor friend this last week about a new wave of persecution in India that's going on. So don't think that what's going on in the 7th century here is not relevant for today. That day is coming, guys. And I guarantee you, we, we will have a season, maybe in our generation, maybe in our, our, our young people's generation, maybe in your grandchildren's generation, but it will come that a church will gather together and there will be people saying, we need to be faithful to the word no matter what happens. We are here for the gospel. And there will be some other people going, you know, pastor... You know, maybe if we just kind of don't advertise it so much, you know, maybe we just kind of soften the, we'll, we'll, we'll try to, we'll be faithful in our hearts, right? But this is the warning. Do not follow the people. Now notice this. God's message to the people. There's a plur- the plural is used here, okay? And this is where the y'all and all y'all debate comes in, okay? So however you say you, plural, just write that in the margin there. Because verse 12, the you changes to plural. This is God's message to the people who were tempted to side with Ahaz and Assyria, okay? Verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread, then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for my inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will, they will even be snared and caught. Now look at this. We need to break this down a little bit. What's the conspiracy? The conspiracy is that the people are saying what Isaiah is doing, what God is saying through Isaiah is just a game. It's just, um, it's smoke and mirrors that what they really need to do is sober up and side with Assyria and save themselves from the threat of Syria and Israel. 
Okay, that's the conspiracy. Now, let me ask you a difficult question. Theological question. Verse 13. Here's what Isaiah says of the people. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Anybody have a King James version? Read, uh, Tony, read the King James, please. Listen to this, guys. Uh, that is verse 13 of chapter 8. Him you shall hallow. Oh, why don't we talk like that anymore? Him we shall hallow. Him we shall sanctify. Him we shall make holy. So here's my theological question for the day. How do you make God holy? Okay, he's already holy, right? So how do we obey the command if he's already holy? (laughs) Regard him as holy. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Live in a way that reflects his holiness. How do you do that in a situation like this where you are being tempted to compromise the message of God because of the people and persecution and threats around you? You stay obedient? You separate. Yeah. Remember the word holy? Obedient to his message. And the way you do that is to sanctify the Lord is, is to do what? You're setting him apart from all the rest of the message, right? You're taking, listen, here's how you do that. You take the voice of God out of the background noise of the culture. And you turn up the volume on the voice of God. You set him apart and you listen to that. Right? That's what you do. Um, What marriage is, is not a cultural invention up for debate. God invented marriage. He defined it the way it is. We obey it, right? We set that apart from all the cultural noise and say, we've got to obey that. What gender is, is not a fluid, user-selectable, dynamic spectrum thing that you can change weekly. In the beginning, God made them male and female. We, we don't get a vote in that, guys. It, it may be it may be what your company values. Your, your company, gentlemen, ladies, may call you to engage in certain practices for the betterment of the company that God says are wicked. And you have to pull out the voice of God. You have to sanctify the voice of God in the midst of that and listen to that and not all this other stuff that says, but if we don't do this, we're not going to get ahead. We're not going to be competitive anymore. All our competitors are doing that. You see that? Uh, Those of us that have families, small children, I I love this. This is a great illustration right here, right? We're trying to raise these little ones to know and follow Jesus. What does that mean? It means what we spend our time on, what we value, what we listen to, what we prioritize in our family has to come from the voice of God. And there are some things in our families we just have to say flat out no to because it violates the holiness of God, right? In terms of entertainment, in terms of uh, choices there. And there are other things that we have to emphasize... That the culture is going to say, well, yeah, church is important, but it's not as important as these other things we need to be doing. So to sanctify God, it is to obey him, what Nick said and what Jack said. We, we, we set him apart in terms of the voice we're listening to. Guys, to be a growing Christian is that the volume of God's voice in your life gets increasingly louder and clearer as you mature in Jesus. God doesn't really mean what he 
church. I mean, we're all in agreement, but mm-hmm. the people that we go to church with, uh, including pastors, yeah. do not. Obedience means different things to different people. Yeah. And there really is only one definition. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we don't redefine obedience for convenience, right? So, uh, That's right. We're, we're, we're in a struggle uh, as much from within as we are from without. That's right. Yeah. No, that's that's really, really true. That's that's a really good point. So we have to not just fight the battle outside, but we need to win the battle inside to stay unified around things as simple as what obedience is. That's right. Here's another question. Look at verses 12 and 13 and tell me, what is the solution to sinful fear that would capitulate in regard to obeying God? Do you see that? What's the solution to fear? You guys have been kind of quiet over here. What's the solution to fear? You guys a nice new monitor? I mean, look at that. Yeah, every reason to participate today. Yeah. Did you hear that? The solution to the wrong kind of fear is the right kind of fear. You don't, you don't eradicate sinful fear by not fearing. You eradicate sinful fear by replacing it with a godly fear. So, so let's talk to the, to the to the young people here. We've got some young people sitting here today. When when your friends, yeah, Tom, I'm, I'm pointing at Tom right back here. When your friends give you opportunity and pressure you to do something you know would compromise your faith, and you fear their disapproval, right? You you fear the pressure of that, the, the, the what they're going to think of you and what they're going to say about you. What helps you in that moment, according to this verse? That you have a greater fear, right? What's God going to think of me? What will God say? And you know, the the fear of the Lord is not like, oh, I'm scared of God, so I'm going to go over here. The fear of the Lord is saying, I live for His smile alone. Right? You remember that, guys? Young men. Young, long ladies, old men, old, old, can I say old ladies? Old ladies. I just said it. Okay. We'll edit that out of the tape later. Um, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm, I'm talking about those people, you know, somewhere else. So that's it, right? It's, I want the smile of God on my life. I want his approving countenance. More than anything else. Is that what you live for? I mean, I'll, I'll just, I'll be very, very, very honest with you. Um, that's a daily battle for me. There's so many other things, so many other moments, so many temptations, so many things to get caught up in. And it's like, why can't I just live wanting to please Him in every circumstance? But see, Isaiah helps us with that. He's saying, are, are you tempted to go along with the crowd? So the solution is to fear him more, to know him. Notice the language here. Look at this. He helps us here. Um, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. That's one word for fear. He shall be your dread. That's another word for fear. So again, he's using two different words. Same idea. Here's a way to think about it. The weight, the weight, the heaviness of what God thinks should weigh more down on you than anyone else's voice. 
Now, now there is a flip side of this too. Okay, I'll get you just a minute. Um, fear, if you are not his child, if, if you don't belong to God by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, this fear is a fear of danger, isn't it? Uh, was it, um, is it John Murray that says, uh, or no, it's, uh, it's in Jerry Bridges, The Joy of Fearing God, and I think he's quoting somebody. To, to, to not fear God when there is reason to is the most significant form of ungodliness. That's just crazy. So there is a threat here, and you think about the context. Isaiah is not talking to a room full of believers here, is he? He's talking to a mixed crowd, and some of them are on the fence, and he's saying, well, maybe you need to fear God in the sense of his coming judgment a little more. Maybe some of us need to fear God in the sense of his coming judgment. But for those of us that know him, that fear is an awe, it is a reverence, it is a living for his smile, it is a trust in him and a, and a desire to honor him more than anyone else. Yes, sir? Anytime I see like this word fear used multiple times in the Bible, once it, it's applied toward men and another, in the very next verse it's applied toward God. Yeah. The, it's two different words. In, in the Hebrew, I just looked it up on Strong's, and the fear in verse 12 means to be frightened. Mm-hmm. No, those are good observations. And in fact, um, when you look at all the vocabulary here, he is using different words. And, and it's emphasizing this idea that, you know, these people are filled with fear, the wrong kind of fear, and they need to replace that with the right kind of fear. Yeah, it's, you're it's absolutely right. Like should be just a frightened as a, like a small word mm-hmm. compared to the terror. Yeah. God. Well, and, and, that, and that's his point. Uh, if, if you look at verse, um, where is it? Um, yeah, in, in 13, that's why he piles up there. He's saying you, you should fear him more. That's abs- absolutely. Good job. All right, so we want to replace the wrong kind of fear with the right kind of fear. Uh, by, by the way, how, how do you cultivate the fear of the Lord? Yeah. 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 Read the book of Proverbs. Because the book of Proverbs is all about training people in the fear of the Lord. And you're right, it's spending time with him, it's worshiping him, it's knowing his word, walking in his ways. You're probably not going to reverence somebody you don't know very well. Okay, back to the text. And notice, and we'll just, uh, we'll just look at this. Yet some will stumble at God's words to their destruction. This is interesting, and these verses should sound familiar to you. He shall become a sanctuary. If you will fear God rather than people... What's that? He will become a sanctuary. And what does that sound like? How blessed are those who take refuge in him, right? He will become a sanctuary. He comes up a place of worship, but also a place of protection in that. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So what was happening? Isaiah's coming. He's preaching this message of deliverance, of hope, and people just rejected it. And so the message that God intended to be salvation and hope becomes what? One more thing they stumble over on their way to destruction. Now the New Testament picks up this language, and uh, Pastor Terry's going to get to it in, in Romans chapter 9 here very shortly. 
and then it occurs again in first Peter chapter two, the stone which the builders rejected, what happens? Becomes the chief cornerstone. And then both Peter and Paul quote from this verse in Isaiah, borrowing the metaphor saying that the Lord Jesus, who we're still talking about, by the way, we're still talking about the coming Messiah in this text. He will be salvation to some, right? The cornerstone for those that embrace him, or he will be a stone of stumbling for those that reject him. And, you know, that tells us that what we're seeing today in terms of evangelism is no different than it was here. The same message that God brings then and today can be something that continues your path to destruction, or it can be the very thing that rescues you off of that path, depending on how you respond to it. Okay? Um, Let's stop right there. All right? Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, this time and your word, and um, what a... What an overwhelming message that uh, this text brings us as we think about who you are, um, the hope of the gospel, the Messiah promised in these verses in the midst of great threat from political forces on the outside. Father, I pray that we would learn from these men and women of our past, that we would fear you above all that we would not compromise what we know is true and right because of the opinion of others or the pressure of others. That when we're threatened, maybe not by a surrounding nation, but when we're threatened by financial issues or health issues or people problems, relationship difficulties, difficulties from our past, whatever, whatever the thing that, that weighs on us today that we would draw near to you and not fall into the world's way of handling those things. The ancients said that we should live koram deo, in the face of God, and we want to live, as it were, for your smile and for your approving gaze by faith in Jesus each day. So Lord, give us wisdom and courage. We don't know what the future will bring for our generation, but we know there are threats to the gospel and threats um, against your people and your church. Uh, Remind us of our dear brother Isaiah here in his day that we might learn from his message and learn from his example. Lord, we pray for our young people. Would you make them strong in the faith that the distractions of the world, the interests of their peers the pressures of the society that they're growing up in, that they would be young men and young women of faith, strong in you, living for you, growing in you, mature in you, as they will carry the gospel into the next generation. So we pray for them. Might they remember Isaiah and the men and women that have gone before them. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of the Messiah. And thank you that we have so much more of your revelation to add to what we've learned so that we can walk away encouraged and hopeful in you. Lord, help us, even this week, to live out our faith in joy before you. In Jesus' name, amen.